And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Today, a bit of a disclaimer in that if you have young ears near the radio, it might be a good time to busy them elsewhere around the house as uh, we get an opportunity to kind of talk parent to parent, dealing with a topic that, um, quite frankly, you do need to be talking to your children about. And this is the topic about talking about the topic. If I thoroughly confused you now, good. When we were kids, not that many years ago, I constantly remind myself, uh, we learned about the birds and the bees from a variety of sources. Usually they were peers who had either heard about it from older brothers and sisters, or maybe had stumbled upon uh, dad's magazine collection, something of that sort. And so we, we kind of came up through the process of learning about um, sexuality through outside sources. And then eventually mom and dad came along and sat down and had the talk. I remember when my dad had the talk, and I'm not sure who was more nervous about it, he or I. Well, that sense of nervousness hasn't changed much, but i tell you what has changed. The sense that parents have in terms of what the talk should consist of, what the kids do and do not already know about sexuality, and then third and perhaps most importantly, how early that conversation needs to take place. Um, we would think in this day and an age with the over-sexualization of our society that this would be an easier conversation to have. But for many parents, it's become increasingly more difficult. So at what point can we begin a meaningful and age-appropriate conversation about such subjects as sexuality, pornography, and even more serious sexual abuse? Well, my guest today has some insights on that very topic. In fact, she is the author of a new book called Five Things Every Parent Needs to Know About Their Kids and Sex. And Marie Miller, thanks for taking time to be with us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of those discussions that every parent knows that they should have or need to have with their son and daughter, and yet uh, I think all have the tendency to want to put it off. And, and as you suggest in the book, almost every parent today has a number of really severe misconceptions about what their child knows, when they learned it, and what the source was. So maybe we can start with kind of, uh, before we, we encourage parents on how to educate their own children on the topic of sexuality, perhaps some parents need to be educated to begin with. Sure. Um, what kind of brought this topic to mind so much that I felt like it was kind of my message to share with the world was um, my own story. I grew up a preacher's kid in a, a very conservative Southern environment and was never talked to about sex. And through that was um, abused by a youth pastor, unfortunately, and exposed to pornography in my teens. And this was years and years and years ago. Um, and God has healed me in tremendous ways. And so I started sharing my story to high school students, college students, and then even more recently, middle school students. And what came out of years of sharing my story was learning that children as young as 10, nine years old, um, are, are being abused, are exposed to pornography, and they're terrified to talk to their parents about it. They're, they feel so much shame. And so once I, I kind of saw that this is a, a very common pattern, I started doing some research into what our kids are exposed to and when and why it's so important to talk to them a lot sooner than we think is 
is realistic. One of the big um, issues that you take umbrage with early on and throughout the book, and maybe it's a good jumping off point for our discussion today, and that is this notion that every parent has, that my child is the exception. Um, This idea that, well, uh, my son or daughter, they were raised in a good Christian home or a good Christian school or they have good Christian parents or a good Christian upbringing, and therefore we don't need to worry about such matters. I'm not going to be concerned about them sexualizing early or or getting in trouble because after all we've done all the right things what what is wrong about this misconception that many parents have that it's not going to be their kid that their kid is the sole exception sure no i think there's kind of a a two-part answer to that the first being it's not about sheltering like we can shelter our children as much as possible we can hide them in the basement away from technology not give them smartphones or ipads or anything like that um, but sheltering is not the answer. It's having a conversation is because at some point your child is going to be an adult and will need to know how to process sexualized information that they received from the world. And on the other hand of this, I was the exception. Um, like I said before, I was a preacher's kid. I grew up in a very small town that was very conservative with good values and great parents and a great home life and a small school. And, and I mean, this was before the Internet, so I wasn't even exposed to what's on the Internet now um, at that young of an age. But yet, unfortunately, as I said, life still happened and, and I was still abused by somebody and through that abuse was exposed to pornography and was terrified to talk to my parents about it. So now with the internet and apps and social media, even though you may be doing everything you can to to shelter or to protect your child and, and that's very valuable, your child probably has a friend who has access to the internet or will hear something on the radio or hear something even at church um, just that another child says that they need to be prepared to know how to respond to. So we can't protect our, our children from everything all the time. And it's really about teaching them how to process that. And, and you know, the irony, uh, Anne-Marie, is it's not that many years ago, not that many generations ago, when the whole issue of a child being introduced to such matters was a question of uh, when it was going to happen and uh, under what circumstances the parent would introduce the topic. Today, as you suggest, with peer pressure, media, entertainment, social media at all, uh, it almost sounds like this is sort of a grace against time, meaning that they'll be exposed to it. The question is, who gets to them first and what kind of a message are they exposed to? Is it the healthy, biblically-based viewpoint on sexuality and reproduction and uh, this creation of God? Or is it the distorted view that is one that, quite frankly, for a lot of kids, I think, can... um, can lead them to believe that this is just simply uh, a, a dirty subject. Right. There's um, so much in the world today that is changing. What values were right 20 years ago are wrong now, and and vice versa. And we, by teaching our children that the Scripture is the truth and Scripture doesn't change and giving them that perspective early on is so key to forming their, their sexual development and, and how they interpret sexual messages from the world um, because they're there. They're, they're going to receive them, and the parents should be on the front lines of, of communicating that and being a, a valuable and trustworthy place for their kids to come to to talk about sex. Anne-Marie Miller, our guest today, a look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. 
We'll uh, deal with the big question of what about this matter of exposure to online porn and how early can it potentially begin? We'll address that question and more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. A visit with Anne-Marie Miller. A look at five things every parent needs to know about kids and sex. Uh, Of course, the big issue I think that many parents have always struggled with, Marie, is, okay, uh, when do we start the conversation? What's an appropriate age? Do we wait till uh, 17, 15 when they start dating? As you're suggesting, more and more these children are getting exposed to things through social media, through peers and online at an earlier and earlier age. Any statistics out there to give us an idea as to just how young, potentially, they're being exposed to this online? Well, what's interesting about that statistic is that every time it's refreshed, I think I I started researching the book about three years ago, and the average age of exposure to online pornography was around 11 to 12 years old at that time for most studies. And toward the end of uh, when I was finishing the book and I was going through the editing process and review process, that number actually dropped to eight years old. Wow. So within three years, it dropped to three years of, of age for children that are being exposed. And it's not like our children are going out there necessarily and looking up pornography intentionally, which sometimes is true. Maybe they hear a word that they don't know and they look it up. Um, but what's happening is that people that market pornography are, are really targeting younger and younger audiences by misspelling common names, like maybe if you type in Disney or the White House or something very common and innocent into the into a search engine and you spell it wrong or they've just created a strategy to expose your child to pornography earlier because we see in the long term that that actually ends up making money for uh, different marketers of pornography. I so, learned this the hard way many years ago. There was some issue going on in the political arena that I believed our listeners needed to get out in front of, and so I urge listeners to um, go to the uh, White House website and please send an email to the president voicing their opinion, and I gave out the, uh, w- without thinking, gave out the White House address. I won't tell you what the dot aspect of it was, but it wasn't GOV, just out mm-hmm. of habit. Right, and I got a right. couple of calls from listeners the next day that were shocked and said, have you seen what's happened to the White House website? And I said, well, no, what are you talking about? And so we logged on, and then we were shocked, too. So the irony is, uh, 30, 40 years ago, you had to go looking for it. You had to go into the seedy part of town and the, the end that nobody ever went to where all the little seedy bars were located. And that's where you had to go to find uh, the stores that catered to people that purchased that stuff. Today, literally, as you're suggesting, Anne-Marie, it comes and finds you, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, we basically have pornography stores that we carry around in our, in our pockets and our purses when we carry our cell phones. The, the potential to be exposed to something unintentionally is so huge for ourselves and our children um, that we just really need to be aware of that. And that's why I encourage parents to start this conversation. Not just one talk. People always refer to it as the talk, but I think it's a series of conversations over many, many years as your child gets older. All right, let's talk about some of the the ground rules, if we can, here. As you point out in the book, this goes beyond simply that babies don't come out of cabbage uh, patches and things of this sort. We, we, We understand some of that. A lot of this also gets to the idea of helping to, to a certain degree, not only 
inoculate your child against the potentiality of some developing uh, someday developing a, an addiction to pornography but more and more we're also having to teach them earlier and earlier so that they can be better protected if they ever find themselves in a circumstance where it could be anything from um, a sexual abuse at the hands of a uh, a trusted relative or for that matter even sex trafficking i mean it, it's amazing the kind of horrible things that our children at such a young age, and for many parents, think of, you know, that kind of period of innocence, gleeful innocence for many of us uh, just a couple of generations ago, where you would never think about talking to your child about such matters when they were eight or nine years old. And, and today, as you're suggesting, if you haven't had that conversation, at least by the time they're 10, it's likely too late. It's likely they've gotten all the details and gotten a lot of wrong details from some other source. Yes, there's probably some sort of, of recovery um, that you're going to have to do with them and, and kind of reteaching and refocusing what, uh, what family values you need to communicate to them. But, I mean, as early as, you know, your, your bond with your child starts in infancy. So just by, by being there for your child and, and naming body parts in the correct way um, as early as, as toddler age um, is, is really important. And so that way, when they get to be in elementary school, when they're really the most vulnerable, because a lot of predators don't think that children know what's a good touch or a bad touch they're, if they haven't been told, because a lot of parents don't tell their children. Um, but by telling your children, you know, if, if mom or dad or whoever is the trustworthy guardian, you know, can, can give you a bath and that's okay, or if your doctor is looking at you and we're in the room, that's okay. But if a stranger or a friend or a teacher touches you somewhere and, and pointing out where those places are, that um, there's no secrets. Even if they tell you to keep it a secret, there's no secrets and you need to tell me. And, and just letting them know what, what is appropriate and what is not when it comes to who can touch them and where is okay for them to, to be touched. What about the parent that is dealing with their own either bad or, or painful past, either because maybe they've struggled with pornography addiction themselves or have been the victims of abuse. And so for them, it's a painful topic. They're afraid to even broach it and, and, and bring it up because they're not quite sure to how to go about addressing this as it brings up issues of their own. I, I would imagine that even though that might be problematic for a parent, that should be no excuse to avoid the topic. Am I right? I'm so glad that you brought that up because you're absolutely right. Parents, I mean, statistically, half of the people listening to your broadcast right now are struggling with some sort of, of sexual sin or, or an addiction, or maybe they were abused. Um, someone out there is struggling. And when we're in that situation, we think that we cannot be leaders for our children and our families. But I want to just really encourage those people that that God has equipped you and, and He has put you over your family to lead your family. They, it's not mutually exclusive. You, you must lead your family and, and teach your children. And yes, you, you probably have some stuff to deal with on your own too. And that's okay, but that doesn't mean that you can't teach your children. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. It doesn't make you ill-equipped um, because God has given you that role. So you are so vital in, in helping your child form their view on sexuality. And perhaps, you know, the, the lesson that you do not want to see your son or daughter either repeat the mistakes that you made or go through the painful experience that you've gone through, 
having been a victim of abuse, that, that this is really an opportunity to help prepare them to, to in, as best you can, as any parent would want to, I think, uh, in their heart, want to do all they can to protect their child. Sure. I think, I mean, we are inherently wired as parents to want to do the best for our children and, and to protect them and to guard them from anything that can harm them. And I know just within my own life, and my husband and I are expecting in July, and just the love and protection I, I have already for this child. Um, and, and we're planning now, like, when will we have these conversations and how will we talk about our past with them? And you don't need to reveal everything about your past to your child. I mean, it's, it's definitely not necessarily even appropriate to do that. But using the experiences in your life that have been harmful to help protect your child is a beautiful way that God can redeem that part of your story. But see, you can cheat here because uh, you wait a couple of years once your son or daughter is, uh, well, probably more than a couple of years, but when they're ready to, ready to read, just say, here, Mommy wrote this book with you in mind. <laughs> read it and call me if you have any questions. <laughs> yep, I've already started reading to to our child um, while, while it's growing inside me, so hopefully it's picking up on a few things early on. But Now, as much as I, I mentioned that, mentioned that tongue-in-cheek. Stay with us for a minute, if you would, uh, Anne-Marie, because I want to come to another another topic, and then we're going to ask Anne-Marie to kind of walk us through a quick tutorial on the five things that every parent needs to know about kids and sex. And one of the questions we'll pose is for parents that feel uncomfortable at this topic, ill-equipped to address questions or feel like you were born in an you know a light year away that you're so out of touch with what the kids are facing that maybe you think hmm gee if i could just give my son or daughter a book like a copy of Marie's book or or how about this just suggest they google it anything wrong with that We'll find out as our conversation with Anne-Marie Miller continues a look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. Anne Marie Miller, our guest tonight, as we're talking about this topic, and more and more parents are coming to the painful realization that it's not a question of um, necessarily when your children get exposed. That's simply happening earlier and earlier. It's a question of who gets to them first. Do you get to them with the right information, the right answers in a uh, God-centered, biblically-based fashion, or do you wait for them to learn about it from social media, their peers, or the internet? We're talking about that very topic. And and one of the things, um, before we get to have you walk through these five things um, that every parent needs to know, Anne-Marie, is this idea of some parents that feel as if, well, I, I feel a little bit awkward about this. So I'm just going to suggest to my son or daughter that they Google it to get more information. Uh, Is that bad advice? That is really bad advice. Uh, Please do not do that. Um, That's actually one of the five points that we'll get to um, as far as the five things that parents need to know is we live in a generation where when we don't know the answer to something, we just Google it. We just look it up on the Internet. And when it comes to issues of sexuality, when you do that, and especially with younger generations, they don't want to sit and read an article. They're going to Google image search that. So um, they're going to get exposed to images that are just inappropriate for them to see. All right, let's let's walk through these five things, and you, you detail them in the book, and realize, of course, for listeners, that uh, this is not meant to be exhaustive. Uh, this is meant to kind of hit the highlights for you and then encourage you to get a copy of Anne-Marie Miller's new book. By the way, the book is newly published by Baker and available at Christian bookstores around the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And Anne-Marie, it's also available on your website? 
Yes, it sure is. You All right, so folks can go to, to AnneMarieMiller.com and order the copy of the book there as well. All right, let's break it down. Walk us through, if you would, the five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. Uh, the first one is the earlier the better. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier in the show, but talking to your kids about sex from literally birth through 18 and over, um, we kind of cover what age-appropriate conversations are four different age groups. So if you have a four-year-old or a 12-year-old, um, you can kind of know what they're experiencing and what you should probably be talking to them about. Um, the second one is that your child is not the exception. And again, that's something that we we really battle, uh, especially within the Christian community, is we think we're doing everything we can to protect our child, and we are, but that's not the answer. Just having that conversation so that when they are exposed to these things, they can know how to process it in a biblical manner is, is definitely key. Uh, the third thing is just about media. Um, any type of media, TV, movies, radio, music, video games, the whole gamut. I kind of just uh, did a lot of research about what's on these different forms of media and how children are exposed to them and, and the, the risk and benefits and it, it was really shocking to me, um, to be quite honest, to to watch a show that's rated for 14-year-olds and be exposed to 40 or 50 sexual references in just a few minutes. I, I was so, shocked the, the other day. I, I happened to catch a repeat of one of the movies in the Shrek series. Mm-hmm. And... I, I, I it, it hit me at so much a surprise. I, I, I didn't even at first. I thought, oh, I'm clearly misunderstanding this, until I realized that that one of the characters written into I think it's Shrek three, is is intentionally created as a transsexual. And I thought, yeah. oh well, we're just keeping up with the uh, uh, with the Bruce and Caitlyn Jenner times, I suppose. Yeah, even in, I mean, <laughs> Shrek is cute, but even like in the original Shrek, uh, the magic mirror talks to Snow White and says, just because she lives with seven men doesn't mean that she's easy. I mean, that says, he, that mirror says that in the first Shrek. You know, the irony That's is that we realize that there are adults who write the scripts, who, who do the artwork, so they're going to occasionally put content in that seems to get the guffaws out of the adults in, in the audience, but of course they fail to recognize that the, the biggest group of consumers of that content are going to be children. And make no mistake about it, there's got to be some degree to which part of this kind of the, you know, the, the behind the scenes inside, ha ha ha, let's pull one over, kind of a deal and part of it is has got to be some intentional effort i mean i i i looked at this one character in shrek 3 and i thought they're intentionally trying to prepare kids for that early age uh in in introducing them to the topic of of uh transsexualism which you know given the the debate going on in this country today regarding children and the use of bathrooms and and whatnot and a bill that even here in california has been uh facing a court challenge that pushes the very same topic you, you would you would think that these films that are geared for children would be safe for children but that isn't always the case and i i suppose to a great degree, parents find themselves in the very unenviable position of having to explain things that they never thought they would be discussing with a seven-year-old. You're absolutely right. It's it's really amazing, and, and sadly, it's become kind of the new norm um, because we have a, a set of values that's very different from what the world puts in the media. You know, we're shocked and we're we're horrified to hear these things or to see these things. But it's just another day at the office for a lot of people, and they don't give a second thought about it. 
Okay, so from the media, point number four. Um, so we move from media into that whole Google is the new sex ed idea that we are a generation. We are a, a world almost where when we don't know something, we go to the Internet. If you, as an adult, if you need to know how thorough your meat needs to be cooked when, when you're making a steak or a hamburger, you Google it. Or if you want to know who sings a certain song, you Google it. And it's the same way when our kids hear uh, a word in school or that their peers say they think that it might be a bad word, they will turn to the Internet because they don't want to turn to your parent because they're embarrassed or their friends. So they go to the Internet, put the word in, and then that's how a lot of children are exposed to pornography for the first time. And amazingly, of course, uh, you know, again, talk about feeling your 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 eons, light years away, where for my generation, if you had questions, you either looked it up in your Encyclopedia Britannica or in the reference department of the local library, where even if there were any of those books that might be questionable, they were they were under lock and key. And when you walked up to the to the reference librarian's desk and clearly you were, you know, seven years old or 10 years old, you didn't get access to that stuff. There's nobody there with any of this under lock and key, is there? I mean, even if a parent says, oh, we put certain filters on and we're trying to do our best, the reality is, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Anne-Marie, it isn't even as much a question of your child going and looking for it, even if they are. The reality is this stuff is coming and looking for your child, isn't it? It's very true that 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 is very often the case. Okay, and point number five. And the point number five is that sexually abused children rarely speak up. Mm. And that was something that, um, unfortunately, I know it makes every heart and every every parent quiver just a little bit to think that um, their their child could be sexually abused and, and not know about it. My, my own parents didn't know about my abuse until I was 28, and that was 12 years after it happened. And there's so much shame and stigma tied with sexual abuse that we really, um, victims of abuse, tend to keep quiet. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done by parents, and, and one, of the, one of the issues here, and you, you led with it, the, the matter of um, the age at which you start to address these matters with your child, and I know that it's going to cause a sense of embarrassment or chagrin for a lot of parents to think, I, I can't really be can't, it's really talking to an eight-year-old about such things. And, you know, I think when a lot of us were, were kids of that age back uh, – in the last century, uh, you know, our, if, if our parents brought such matters up, they gave cutesy names to body parts, and so we all we all kind of chuckled over it. But the idea of of addressing your child to protect your child from such abuse or from such exposure, uh, as as counterintuitive as it seems to be, we want to think we want to protect our child by inoculating them or, or isolating them from exposure to all of this. But again, I guess the, the big warning, if there is any from your book, is the big takeaway, Anne-Marie, the idea that they're going to get it. The question is, what source are they going to get it from and how is it going to be couched or presented? Yes, that's that's absolutely right. And I think, again, that parents have got to be on the front line of this. And oftentimes in, in books past, you know, people recommend getting in the car and driving with your child somewhere to have these conversations so that there's no escape. And I think that actually kind of plays into the message that there's something to be ashamed of. But it's really, I think, our, our opportunity as parents to to sit down with our child and look them in the eye and, and talk about these things and Yes, it, it's going to be a little awkward, but to embrace that and know that sex is not 
a dirty topic that we need to sweep under the rug. And, you know, it's this beautiful gift that God's given us to share between a, a man and his wife in, in marriage. And outside of that, the world's distorted it. But just to normalize that conversation so that your kids can feel safe to talk to you about questions and they don't feel awkward when you when you bring stuff up, um, that's, that's just really key. That conversation is really key. And, and certainly, as I think you suggest, creating a safe environment, a healthy environment in which these conversations can take place, in which children feel comfortable approaching mom and dad, too, with questions, is going to go a long way toward making sure that it doesn't take place eventually later on out of and beyond your control in very unsafe environments. They can be every, every gambit from teaching uh, values that are con- contrary to the the Christian ethic, the biblical uh, uh, standard that you want to create in your home and for your child, and, and, and to the, the, the sad and horrific continuum of sexual abuse if your child isn't prepared to know what it is and what to look out for. A look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex, again, newly published by Baker Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Anne Marie Miller's website at annemariemiller.com. That's annemariemiller.com. This report is sponsored by DuckDuckGo. Protect your privacy for free with DuckDuckGo. In San Leandro, eastbound 580, right before 150th Avenue, you'll find the right lane block. Fire crews in that lane uh, due to a brush fire they're working on. Traffic stop and go from Grand Avenue. Multi-vehicle crash in Concord, eastbound 4. That has been cleared. It was right before you get to 680. And traffic is still stop and go uh, between 680 and Port Chicago Highway. Milpitas, two-car crash westbound 237 as you approach Zanker. That's on the right-hand shoulder. Traffic stop and go beginning around 880. That's traffic. I'm Michael Bennett. Your life, your hopes, and whatever you were searching for at 1.15 a.m., it's really none of our business, and it shouldn't be anyone else's. Protect your privacy online for free with DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Friday, October 15th, one of today's most influential conservative voices comes to the Bay Area for one night only. Don't miss an evening with Sebastian Gorka pulling back the curtain on the leftists, the Democrats, and the Biden administration. Sebastian Gorka uncovering the lies, the half-truths, and the push for socialism. An evening with Sebastian Gorka, Friday, October 15th, 7 p.m. at the Fremont Newark Doubletree. Get your tickets today at kfax.com. Attention, do you own a term life insurance policy? If so, you might be able to convert all or part of your term life policy to a permanent plan that could give you level premiums for life without any health questions or medical exam. It's easy to see if you are eligible and our consultation is free. Just call the Life Quotes helpline at 800-410-0668. Rates on term life insurance stay low for only a certain period of time. Then they skyrocket up. Conversion is a feature found in most term life policies. Conversion gives you the right to convert your term life plan into a more permanent plan of insurance with level premiums without any medical questions. Call the Life Quotes Help Center now at 800 410 0668. That's 800 410 0668. 
Alan Greenspan once said, In the absence of the gold standard, there's no way to protect savings from confiscation through inflation. There's no safe store of value. But with inflation looming and gold at an attractive buying price, it may be time for you to diversify your savings with the oldest, most stable instrument of trade in the world, gold and precious metals. Not a certificate, but a tangible, valuable possession that holds its value during inflation. Call the Gold Financial Group to buy or get more information on how gold and precious metals can be your hedge against inflation. Whether you're an experienced metals investor or this is your first gold purchase, you'll find all the help you need to properly diversify your savings. Call today and get your beginner's guide to learning about investing in precious metals. Call the Gold Financial Group today at 800-429-0985. That's 800-429-0985 or go to thegoldfinancialgroup.com. Hi there, Jordan Michaels here. Well, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, Mike Lindell, wants to give back to our listeners. So he's offering some pretty great discounts on all MyPillow products. You can see all the items at MyPillow.com. Just click the radio listener specials. You'll find deep discounts on mattress toppers, towels, and so much more. He's also offering a buy one, get one free offer on those great Giza Dream Sheets. I've had a couple of sets of those sheets for about four years now, and they're the only ones I use, and they still look new. They come in a variety of sizes and colors, and of course, all MyPillow products come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. All you have to do to get these great discounts is visit MyPillow.com, click the radio listener specials, and enter the promo code KFAX, or you can call 800-479-1790. Be sure to use that promo code KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As much as money is so much a part of the topic of what's going on in the world and in our nation, it even filters down to our own personal lives. And, you know, ironically, when we think about it in, in Western culture and in American society, I think um, in specific, um, we have a lot of ideas about money and the connection to money and masculinity and what that means. A lot of men, I think, feel as if they have been emasculated. Since uh, fall of 2008, when we saw the implosion of Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers at all, to see people who have lost their jobs, they've lost life savings, they've lost retirement dollars, they've lost their homes. Many of the things that particularly we as men, as the breadwinners of the family, tie into what we consider to be marks of success and what it means to be a man. And yet, as my next guest will suggest, um, the true meaning of what it is to be a man uh, is not measured by economic success, particularly when we look at this from a biblical or Christian worldview. He is Richard Simmons, author of The True Measure of a Man. He also serves as director of the Center for Executive Leadership, a Christian-based community resource, and joins us now by phone. And Richard, good afternoon and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Craig. Thank you. This has got to be a tough topic, and certainly men listening to our conversation here tonight who have lost jobs, seen their livelihood and their identity in many cases go down the drain because of that, watch their fortunes erode away because of what's transpired on Wall Street, up to and including in some cases the loss of the very roof over their heads, the, the blow that that must mean to a man and his sense of, of, of self-worth and self-esteem must be horrific. Yeah, it is. And uh, what most men don't realize is the driving force in their lives, even Christian men, 
that so many of us, when it gets right down to it, get our sense of worth and identity um, and significance based on how well we perform out in the worst workplace. That's where we get, uh, I guess you could say that's how we define ourselves. And so when we run into uh, economic uh, calamity, economic problems, it can be devastating. And, you know, I, I think, to be fair, a lot of us guys, and I think myself included, if, if somebody stops me on the street or I'm, I'm talking to an acquaintance that I hasn't seen in, in many, many years, somebody might ask you casually, so, so what do you do for a living? And, and we're inclined, at least I know I am, I'm more inclined to, to tell you who I am as opposed to what I do. In other That's words, right. I will probably say, well, I'm a radio broadcaster, I, ho- I host a talk show, things of this sort, um, as opposed to speaking about specifically the details of the job. Uh, is part of that uniquely a, a Western or, more specifically, American ideal? And if we wrap our identities and, to a degree, our sense of self-worth and value uh, into our livelihood and our ability to earn money and how successful we are at same, and then all of a sudden the carpet, through no fault of our own, is ripped out from underneath us, what does that do to a man at every level, not only economically, emotionally, but even spiritually? Well... What most men don't realize is that life for them is all about what I do as far as, you know, my, my, my work uh, and how successful I am at what I do, which then makes me wonder, what do you think about what I do? How do you rate what I do? Which then <clears throat> leads to what I think is the, the great fear that most men struggle with, even though sometimes they're not aware of it, is what if I fail at what I do? Uh, that failure, the fear of failure, is like a psychological death for most most men. Um, what I'm finding is that men, in many instances, are not driven to succeed. They are driven not to fail. And this, this creates all kind of dysfunction in their lives. It cascades into so many areas, uh, including depression. Um, and it's, uh, it's a real problem that men are just kind of coming to grips with, and it creates all kind of pain in their lives. And they don't want to tell anybody about it. Uh, we have this idea that, that if, if I'm experiencing pain, if I'm struggling, I am betraying my male identity. And we just want to hold it in and not tell anybody. Well, let's face it. I mean, this is part of what we do. We put, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, some do, uh, into their livelihood. They're the breadwinners. They, the man is, uh, you know, providing that, uh, that covering over the household. Uh, the economic aspect of protection, I think, is is high on the agenda. We want to make sure that our families are well cared for, that they enjoy, you know, the finer things in life, that the kids can grow up with good education, someday send our daughters off to be married with a nice wedding, all of the entrapments that are tied into our ability to earn. So then when suddenly that has taken away from us, or we're suddenly faced by this overwhelming fear of failure, uh, what does that do? How does that impact our relationships with, with family, with spouses, and with the Lord? That is a great question. Um, what most people don't realize is that, you know, we have two basic psychological needs, and I explore this in the book. Women have a, primarily a psychological, we both have it, but women have more of a psychological need for security. Men, on the other hand, have a much greater need for significance, that my life matters, that my life uh, uh, is worth something. And therefore, I've seen this when I meet with couples who may have to sell their house. The wife is glad to do it because it makes her feel better about their financial situation. But for a man, it goes much deeper because his significance is threatened, his manhood is threatened, and it can just devastate him. 
and then it impacts the relationship in the marriage, his relationship with his children, and he, he spends so much of his time um, uh, in silence carrying a lot of pain around. It's like that old song by Simon and Garfunkel, I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries, and that's what most men think that they're supposed to be today, and it creates all kind of problems in their home. And so much of this, of course, uh, Richard, as you suggest inside the pages of the book, goes to the heart of what have essentially been false ideas about what it means to be successful. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, that, that is a huge issue, and um, you know, the second half of the book is uh, focuses on how to help men be set free from this, and what you just uh, uh, mentioned is, is, is a major part of this. Uh, Blaise Pascal said the reason that we struggle with life so much is because we have false ideas about reality. And men in in the modern world particularly struggle with this. We have false ideas about what is true masculinity. We have false ideas about what does it really mean to be successful in life. And we have false ideas about what is true wealth. What does it mean to really be wealthy? And so what men don't realize is how important it is to get um, our lives in harmony with what is true because, as Jesus himself said, it's the truth that will set you free. And this, is, to me, is so important to be set free from what I call this success trap that we get so caught up in. Talk to us a bit about, then, what men need to do to, re, to recalibrate their thinking, so to speak. I mean, a lot of us, we, we not only have had this pounded into our heads since childhood, you've got to get a job, you've got to get educated, you've got to go get a career, and we measure success based on, you know, how much money is in the bank and the size and the quality of the vacations that we take, all of these yardsticks, so to speak, that all comes down to finances and money, um, and we end up, I think as you're suggesting, is spending an awful lot of time pursuing an awful lot of lies. That's that's correct. And, um, Craig, there are a number of things that I I could say to you. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to recognize that this is true of my life, because at the heart of wisdom is just understanding yourself, understanding what makes you tick. Um, Second uh, is uh, what I just, we talked about, understanding the lies of, of life that we've bought into. Uh, I talk at length about, you know, what is the object of life? If the object of life is to be wealthy and prosperous and comfortable, then economic misfortune or failure is going to devastate you. But if the object of life is the transformation of my character, the maturing of my soul, and knowing God personally, then the storms of life, the economic storms of life, can be a blessing based on the way I respond to it. But probably the most important thing, and I talk about, you know, focusing on the legacy that we leave behind, how that will impact us. But the most important thing is, is realizing this, that I get my sense of worth and value based on what other people really think about me. You know, if I perform well, then people think well of me. I win their approval. And so I spend so much of my time um, seeking to please them because that's the most important people in my life. That's the audience I'm trying to please. And my challenge to men is, what do you think would happen if Jesus is the most important person in your life, if that's where you get your sense of worth and value, because Jesus loves you, not based on your performance, but on who you are. You're of such great value to him, because we're created in his image, and as believers, we're his children. And therefore, we have great value. It's like that verse in Ephesians 2.10 that says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which means work of art. We are God's masterpiece. We are of great value to him. And if a man can really get that into his life, it will change him radically.
What's the starting point? Uh, obviously, I think a lot of self-introspection. I mean, a lot of guys, when they go through challenges, they're facing uh, the sp- prospect of, of losing a lot. They're overwhelmed to a great degree by, by fear. I think oftentimes we we uh, then operate or function out of a sense of panic and not really reality-based. And guys are saying, well, it's time to you know brush up the resume, Richard, and <laughs> you know get ready to start all over again. Do we need to maybe get reevaluated, not as we prep for the next big interview with the potential employer, but rather to, to then look at it, as you're suggesting, from what are the kind of questions, not that the, the, the prospective employer would be asking me across from the table, but what are the kind of questions that God would be asking me? Yeah, I, I think the, the the starting place is, uh, and you kind of uh, hinted at it, is we, we have to reorient our thinking and our approach to life and our approach to work. You know, it, it's it it's not so much um, uh, how much money I make. It's you know, what is God calling me to do with the rest of my life? Uh, you know, that's why I think if a man really starts thinking about his legacy, um, you know, when his life is over, what will his life have been all about? And as when you begin to think in those terms, you don't get so caught up in uh, you know the amount of money you make. You really want to seek to, to uh, do work, and, and I guess you could say do with your life what will have the greatest impact on others and what will advance the kingdom of God. Yeah, ultimately, the true measure of a man not being based on the size of your uh, portfolio, your bank account, the size of the home that you live in, but but rather ultimately on the measure of your relationship before God. Richard Simmons, the author of The True Measure of a Man. Information, by the way, on the book, either through Amazon.com or through Richard's website at thetruemeasureofaman.com. That's thetruemeasureofaman.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.